The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, it is time for another exciting episode of our show. <laughs> I thought I thought you were about to reveal that we changed the name of it. I'm very excited about that. No, that would be fun. But hey, I was talking to Kay's recently. He did say he would update our music for us. So Woody. that's exciting. Well, maybe we should get people to uh, reach out to us and give us notes on our music. I don't know. Give us give us thoughts. I was, I was thinking maybe something Hawaiian or like. No, no, I'm not. Just, <laughs> no, I'm just, no, you don't want Hawaiian. I mean, no, no. I mean, nothing against Hawaiian music. I just think it's. Uh, How about loungy? Something loungy? A loungy, uh, sure. You're, you're you're giving me the death stare. <laughs> I'm guessing not loungy. You know what we so currently no have. I always I always <laughs> felt like <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the ending credits music from Blade Runner. So I've always been very very uh, fond of it. The Vangelis score. I really like it too, and I have a feeling that if uh, Case updates it, then it's going to be what he wants, and so it'll probably be something like that part two. I don't know. Oh, maybe it'll be Dixieland. Ooh, Dixieland, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lots of lots of trombones. Hey, uh, Ben, let's uh, remind people that you can get a, a month free at Assemble.tv with the promo code Cinepod. Cinepod. Definitely is. check it out. I think uh, Assemble.tv is awesome, and I think anyone who is about to go into production should at least consider it. Check out Assemble.tv, and uh, you know, if you got a small project that won't take that long, you can do the whole thing for free on, on us with the promo code Cinepod. Hey, Ben, who's on the show today? Who is on the show today is very exciting. Daniel Lautzen. Oh, yes. Who shot Nightmare Alley, which I have now seen twice. Nice. Uh, yes, it is gorgeous. I love it. Uh, it's no mystery to people that I'm a giant fan of Guillermo del Toro's work. And Daniel Lautzen, basically since Guillermo Navarro stopped shooting his films, Daniel Lautzen has shot, I think, most if not all of Guillermo del Toro's movies. But also, like, he's been around forever. In fact, I went uh, down a little a little memory lane rabbit hole this week, and I rewatched Brotherhood of the Wolf, a movie that I did not have time to talk to him about. Hmm. But it was a movie from, I think, 1999 or 2000, French movie freaking gorgeous mm. oh my god i was it, and i hadn't seen it i saw it in the theater and i hadn't seen it since just a beautiful film that people don't remember super well but it's around the french revolution and there's some monster killing people in the countryside and you know kind of a posse is assembled to go hunt this thing down and uh, it's a beautiful historical movie also with a giant weird monster and oh my god is the monster weirder than hell when we get to it <laughs> Well, uh, this, of course, is uh, Daniel's second time on the show. I, I spoke with him a couple of years back now at uh, Camera Image, and we talked about Shape of Water and stuff like that. And uh, I, I think this is great. I'm, I'm happy to have him back. I'm sorry that I, I wasn't able to be there. I'm glad, glad you got to do it. Well, and I just cannot recommend Nightmare Alley enough to people. I, it's it's just beautiful. And I, as a big fan of Guillermo del Toro's, and again, I would have said this uh, I, th- I've been banging the drum about this forever. Pan's Labyrinth is probably my favorite of all of his films. I'd say this is probably my favorite film he's done since Pan's Labyrinth. And I, oh, wow. I like or love all of his films. So it's not like I'm uh, crapping on Pacific Rim or Crimson Peak or The Shape of Water. You know, it, it, he doesn't need my help with The Shape of Water. One best picture. Yeah. But I just adore this movie, and it is so brilliant and has a great cast. 
and oh my god does it look amazing it was a real thrill to talk to dan about how he uh, how he'd accomplished the look of this film currently in theaters too for those who are theatering you can go see nightmare alley theater carefully with the uh, omicron variant but yes so, Ben, speaking of uh, theaters, uh, <laughs> our, our close focus today is kind of about the theatrical experience. You know, uh, Yeah, we all thought it was dead. Like, everyone's been complaining that movies are dead. No one's going back to the theaters. And then a little movie called Spider-Man No Way Home opened up with a $587.2 million opening weekend, third largest in history. The other two, do you know what the other two uh, largest movie openings in history were? Oh, man, is it a, a Star Wars movie? No, it wasn't a Star Wars movie. Is it another Marvel movie? Yes, in yeah. both cases. Oh, okay. So so what were the other two? It was Avengers Endgame and Avengers Infinity War. Oh, wow. Gotcha. So, And so. interestingly enough, both of those opened in China, China being the largest movie-going audience in the world. And so China pushed both of those to insanely high opening weekends. So Avengers Endgame opened to $1.2 billion. Oh, my God. Wow. And then taking up the rear there, Avengers Infinity War, a paltry $640 million opening weekend. That's two days. <laughs> well, they, I'll say two and a half these days. Weekends Friday a little night, bit now. Friday yeah. night, Saturday. Yeah, so at $587.2 million, uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, which I have not seen. I, I definitely want to see it. I'm not... Uh, I'm not boycotting it, but apparently it's really hard to get in to see it because every freaking screening is sold out. Uh, I saw it, and uh, it's great. Is it's, it, good? It, it really is great. I'm excited to see it. I'm avoiding spoilers. Say no more. Please, please stop. All stop, right, I'll stop, stop, stop. I'll stop talking about it. But yeah, so, you know, there have been prognosticators out there kind of saying that theatrical movies are dead. I think that Spider-Man No Way Home shows that people will show up to the movie theater. It might have to be a giant event movie and somehow MCU has become, you know, the, the central ringleader in all event movies. But I'm glad people are going to the theater and I hope they didn't all catch Omicron uh, this past week. So well, I will tell you, I, I wore a mask the entire time. I did not eat or drink. But uh, just glancing around the theater, I was definitely in the minority. I would say that, uh, and it was completely sold out. Every seat was filled, and the guy next to me ate a pizza by himself, and the other person on the other side of me ate a giant tub of popcorn, and there was quite mm -hmm. a bit of laughing and chatting maskless in every direction. Now, granted, we were all, you know, had our vaccine cards checked, but that, you know, only offers so much potential uh, safety. I will say movie theaters yeah. have been really good about checking yeah. the vaccine uh, status. Much though. better than a lot of restaurants, I, I gotta say. So I yeah. agree. I went yeah. I went to, uh, I, I did go to a restaurant where they checked it, and I was like, thank you so much for checking my vaccine status. <sighs> well, you know, it's it's definitely, it's, it's different worlds right now. I just got reminded of the fact that Trump stood up and asked some followers uh, to get vaccinated in Alabama, and he was booed. So, <laughs> Whoa. Like, I know, that's kind of a big deal. So, but uh, but really, there are some places in the world right now where they're really, really doing well, and there are other places that are doing terrible. And if for some reason you've decided not to get vaccinated, but are listening to the sound of my voice, and I have any sway over you whatsoever, uh, you you might want to consider getting vaccinated for you know just just for same every, here everybody you know, else honestly yeah. just just to make the theatrical experience of going to movie theaters and not murdering people by doing so, I think it's a great idea for you to get vaccinated and boosted. Uh, and also, as eagle-eared listeners to the podcast will know, I also had COVID about a year ago, 
and uh, oh, yeah. the the vaccine, uh, you know, it makes you a little achy, a little gross for a day or so. Uh, the actual COVID, it was like two and a half weeks of being as sick as I have ever been in my entire life. So please, for the love of God, get vaccinated. Yeah, one of, one of the employees here at Hot Rod, unfortunately, uh, got COVID. We all had to get tested just to be sure. And thankfully, nobody else had it, which was great. And uh, my, my booster is scheduled for tomorrow. So so fun times ahead. So I got boosted like a motherfucker about a month ago because I, I know had you're a the job first, coming up. You were the first person I knew to get bo- boosted. I, I People were like, how did you get vaccinated or how did you get the booster? And I'm like, I got a text from CVS telling me to get vo- to get boosted. And I was like, all right. Huh? All right. Well, hey, uh, Ben, let's get to the interview with Dan Loutson. Here he is. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I am here today with Daniel Lauston. I hope I got the name right. Daniel is the amazing cinematographer of the new Nightmare Alley, which I was lucky enough to get to see last night. And it is just a, a gorgeous film. I, I feel like you and uh, Guillermo del Toro have outdone yourself. So congratulations so much. Oh, thank uh, you so much for that. And I know that you guys made the film during COVID. As a massive Guillermo del Toro fan and a fan of your work as well, I noted like a lack of monsters as such. There's no, there's really no creatures. This is probably the first Guillermo del Toro movie that features no monsters, no creatures, just human beings in human drama. Uh, was there ever any discussion about a difference of approach that that was going to uh, cause in your in your workflow with each other? No. The screenplay I've been reading was there was no monsters, no creatures, no just the creatures that are inside our bodies. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a part of the story, isn't it? You know, when Bradley is getting into the dark world, he's getting into a kind of a creature. So for my money, I think that was a good, because that was like something that was coming after uh, the shape of water. Mm-hmm. Was, of course, the shape of water, but that was not a creature. That was just a fish man. It was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like actually a person. It was like a, a character. But yeah, it was like a, a, a character in a monster suit. And like you said, like these are all, uh, you know, monsters in human suits. <laughs> exactly. So no, there was no any discussions as far as I know, any discussions about bringing any creatures or monster into this movie. It was like 100% character driven. So th- this is, uh, it's an adaptation of a book. And it's also a really well-known film noir from back in the day. Uh, how much inspiration as a cinematographer did you take from the original movie, from the book, from like, where where were your inspirations? My inspiration was from Guillermo. You know, I, I never saw the movie. I've never read the book. So I just going from the screenplay and from, you know, every time you're doing a movie with Guillermo, he's making a kind of a sketch, you know, moon boards. Like this is, yeah. the, like, this is the color. This is like... But very br- briefly, and that's like is our guideline. Myself, the production designer, hand makeup and costumes. It's like he wants to go this way, and then we are taking yeah. it from there. You know, it's a lot of discussions. But we were ne- we are never watching movies together, so we are coming in very clean to how this movie should look. Of course, Guillermo have a lot of lot of ideas in the beginning. Everybody's coming into that world, and when we start to prep, but we we are never watching. Oh, let's go, let's see this movie because that could be a nice inspiration. Uh, and I think that's, it's difficult, but it's a very, very clean way to make a movie. And I like that very much. So we have a lot of discussions from the screenplay about how should that scene look and how, where we're we going to change it and stuff like that. 
And there was a Q and A uh, with Guillermo after the screening. It was it was uh, I was here in L.A., but they had it pumped in from New York. And he said something that like really stuck with me that I thought was brilliant in talking about film noir. He said that noir is neorealism with brutality. Yeah, I guess, you know, like add some uh, brutality to the bicycle thief or Umberto D and you maybe have uh, you've got a noir film on your hands. Was there any discussion of cinematic references like that? Were you were you referencing any movies or is it all kind of just a self-referential world in and of itself? I don't remember we have any reference to any movies because I don't know if Guillermo have seen the first one. I don't think you have, you know. Oh, really? It would be surprised me. If it, but he's not working that way. He's watching a lot of movies, but it's not like we're sitting watching a movie, Citizen Kane or whatever, and say, this is the way we should do. We are talking a lot about how to tell the story with the camera and how to tell the story with the lighting, how should the lighting change, you know, in the carnival, single source lighting, but still like very, you know, we like this single source, you know, one light from the one side and the rest is going dark. That's, yeah. that's the thing I like very much. And he likes it as well, of course. That's, uh, but we have done and, that. And that's a signature of noir, you know, like the noir means black. It's it, a lot of noir films were single source. Yeah. But when we are coming into the, to the Buffalo world, we want to make Kate like a weird movie star, you know, she should be yeah. powerful. And oh my God. Cool. Yeah. And that is like really old fashioned single source lighting, you know, just light one camera above the camera. Yeah. So we, we did that. And, because the camera is moving so much in Guillermo's movies, it's really a bit tricky to do that because you still have to, you keep having to move the light as well. Oh, really? Like you have to pan the lights or move them around yeah, during the shots? Putting the lighting on a small track or whatever so you know the light is on the per- per- perfect angle on her. Oh, interesting. We was inventing the grips and the electrics just invented like a, cold, a, a kind of a small follow spot in a big uh-huh. tube. So we didn't have the spill light when we moved the light around. That was my next question is like, if you're doing that, how do you avoid creeping shadows in the background or, you know? There's some creeping, creeping shadows now and then, but you're very, very little. We try, try to avoid that, of course. But we have a long, long tube as a kind of a cutter. So we have that when Kate is standing there, for example, in the Copacabana, the first time you see her with a gun in the small back, you know, they have like these very special shadows on the top of her head. It's very noir, but, you know, we, we try to do that with a, with a follow spot. Not really a follow spot, a small 1K in a, in mm-hmm. a tube. And it was, pretty, it was crazy. But that's the thing where Guillermo and, you know, myself as well, we are very precise about how should Kate look there. You know, when you yeah. want, she should look as gorgeous as you could, but still not flatlining her. You know, you, you want to have, because we don't like flatlining. We, we want to have, the lights should be a character. The lights should be a part of the storytelling. For sure. And a lot of time you have this movie star lighting is going to be pretty flat. So what we try to do, do it beauty light, but with a lot of character. Going back to Pan's Labyrinth, I saw that knowing almost nothing about it when I walked in and was just blown away. And um, I have been a fan of walking into Guillermo del Toro movies knowing as little as I could. So I had seen a trailer for Nightmare Alley some time ago, but I, I didn't know who was in it. And in the scene where she's introduced, my eye went right to her. And I had no reason to believe that, like, I, I just thought he was performing for a bunch of uh, background people. I didn't know that it was going to be Kate Blanchett. And I didn't even recognize her at first. I'm just like, oh, my God, that person looks amazing. And it, it drew me right in. Oh, thank you. That that means it works because we did that by purpose. You know, we have the follow spot behind her. We want to do something with her because we should not see her. We should just see this powerful silhouette. Yeah. And that was what we tried to do. Totally worked. 
I have a question about just about working uh, with Guillermo del Toro in, in a sense, which is that Guillermo del Toro, it's not that he won't cut back to the same shot from time to time, but his none of his scenes feel covered. They feel built and constructed and intentionally like put together. You know, most filmmakers are going to shoot some version of a master scene in overs. And every once in a while, there's a scene where that makes sense. But so many of the scenes just feel like really intentionally constructed shot. One shot goes into the next. After, I would say, we start to do that on Crimson Peak, you know, starting mm-hmm. to move the camera. But then when we went to do Shape of Water, you know, all the shots in Shape of Water is designed shot by mm-hmm. shot. That means we're shooting shot number one, and then we're shooting shot, shot number two. And yeah. then we're going back to number three. We're taking walls on and off all the time. It's very complicated from a cinematographer's point of view because you have to come back to the same lighting again. You know, a lot of times you're shooting towards the windows in the, in the morning and then you're turning around and shoot away from the windows in the evening. But yeah. we are turning around, we're turning around all the time. And of course, sometimes you just lose the track of your lighting because you know the lighting is pretty complicated. But the reason his movie is working so, from my point of view, so fantastic is because that is the way he's shooting it. And it works so fantastic, but that's his design of the movie. So we are never shooting a master. I've never shot a master with him. You know, he's shooting what he needs and that's it. And it's, of course, very, very, it's a big risk to take. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a high wire act. But that's the reason it works so well. That's not a cutaway to somebody standing and looking out of the window or whatever. And I think, I, I just love it. I think it's so fantastic, but it's a difficult way to light because you still have to come back to the same lighting all the time. Yeah, and I don't imagine that, I mean, the lighting in this movie is so precise and the lensing is so precise that, it, you know, I don't imagine that it's a quick turnaround. It's, you know, you've got to really take a lot of detailed notes about what you did to kind of reconstruct that. Yeah, and still you have to, because everything is shot from a dolly on a T-bomb. I don't think we did one single shot where the operator was looking into the camera. Everything was hotheads, uh, steady cam or cranes. Everything is shot like that way. So, you know, a dolly and a T-bomb takes a lot of space, so you have to take the walls on and off. And it's a fantastic way to make a movie, I think. But you know, the director really needs to know where, where he wants to go, and he does that. He, you know, he is, I, I think he's a master. Yeah, you're not, he's not going to give himself extra choices in post about, uh, oh, yeah, I can just cut to blah, 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 because what he's shooting is what he's going to use. He tried to shoot it as precise as he wants to editing as possible. I was paying a lot of attention to kind of the color coding of the lighting, the use of warm and cold. And it felt like it was very intentional because in this, this is not a, a spoiler because it's the first scene of the movie. There's a fire that's a very important aspect of, of the film that kind of opens up the movie. And then warm light is used very intentionally. And even like warm temperature, like the movie starts rainy and ends snowy. Can you talk about how you constructed those ideas? The whole color palette in the movie, we talked a lot about that. You know, how is the color palette going to be in that scene? How is it going to be in the next scene? And that's something Guillermo's coming in from the beginning with a very precise idea about. And then, of course, when we start in prep, the production designer, the wardrobe and hair and makeup and myself, you know, we are talking a lot about what color should that be because we are shooting it very much one-to-one. What you're seeing in the screening room and the cinema it's the way we shot it. If you see the dailies and you see what we have in the final movie, it's more or less the same. Really, really? You didn't do a lot in the grade? No, we're not doing too much in the DI. Because all the colors are so precise 
constructed or designed to each other. So, you know, if you start to make a scene more cold or warm, you know, the whole design of wardrobe and production design is going to fall apart. So we do that very rarely. You know, the, the way we're shooting it is more or less color-wise and exposure-wise, the way we you see the final move. Um, so we're not doing too much color correction in the DI. Of course, we're using power windows and stuff like that, but we are not gaining colors or something like that. Oh, that's really interesting because I feel like in the rise of digital intermediates, there was kind of a tendency to overcook stuff in the DI and really stylize in post. And it didn't have it didn't have that look. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I, I sometimes just assume like, well, the technology is always getting better. But also when you and the director are on the same page and you have a precise idea, you know, you can you can do it like that on set. Yeah, we, you know, we are very precise about, you know, this is what we're shooting in the set. That's the way the movie should look. It's not like, oh, let's fix that later in post. Of course, you're shooting outdoors in daylight. You know, the, the exposure can be all over the place. When we are shooting most of the time, nighttime, and we are shooting indoors, we are controlling the colors. But we have a lot of prep for that. You know, we know when we are coming to the carnival, for example, we know we are going to have a lot of smoke. And we know the carnival would be a third dimension. The first time he's coming into the carnival, you have the, all the smoke in the back. It's not like something you see, but you just feel it. It's just getting a little bit like nervous power to the image, I think. And it's just like, it's just something that giving a third dimension to the image. And we have a very, very clear idea about we should do that in the carnival from the beginning and all the way through. So we designed the carnival with steam and smoke pipes. And so we can do that easier. I'm just really intrigued by this. Like when you're doing these intricately choreographed moments between camera and actors and getting everything like exactly the way that you've planned, what's the process of getting that all together? Is it, what, What's the process of the dance? I know that the camera moves and everything are all very designed, but does it start with the camera? Does Guillermo start with the actors and then tweak the camera around it, knowing what the basic plan was? Walk me through the process of getting some of these just- It's a little bit of both. So we talk about what kind of equipment we should do, we should use the key grip Guillermo and the operator myself. And then when we figure out what kind of equipment we want to use, then Guillermo have a headset to the dolly grip or to the crane operator and talk him through the shot. So Guillermo is very much like, of course, everybody's talking together about trying to design it, but in the end, he's like very much, let's move in, let's go down because he knows the cutting point. Nobody else yeah. can do that with him because he knows where he wants to cut. And then, of course, there's a lot of discussions with the actors about should I go there? And so everything is coming together. It's not like it's the kind of a mosaic where everything is falling into places when we start to do it. And I know this is more of a directing question than a cinematography question, but does he pre-rehearse with the actors so they come in with an idea of the blocking already? Or do you, I are think you block- like, yeah, depends. Depends on days, you know. I think some days he does it and some days he does not do it, but... You know, he's very prepared. So I'm sure he's, um, he had that discussion with actors before. And then we are coming up and try to design the shot and figure out what to do. And then we are lighting it at the same time. Um, and this may have been my imagination, but it had an impact on me. It seemed like there was a change in the way the camera moved when you were in the circusy stuff in like the first half of the movie. And then when you go to later and everything, all the lines are cleaner and you're inside kind of uh, art deco or whatever buildings, the movement changed. It didn't stop the movement, but, but there was kind of, it felt like there was a different ethos in how to move the camera. Am I right about that? I think it was a little bit more precise. Yeah. Precise is maybe not the right word, but you know, the lighting was much more precise, much more single source lighting. And the camera was moving 
more around the access this time, I think. No, I think you're right about that. You know, the carnival is much more loose. It's less, I would say it's precise, but it's less precise when we are coming in to the Copacabana. Everest, you know, we want to, Kate should look like a princess. She should look like a queen. Yeah, I know. She looks am- She looks amazing in the whole movie too. Yeah, but you know, that's, no, oh, thank you. But that was the tensing of the lighting. She should look like an old noir. And that's, we didn't want to do that with soft lighting. We want to do that with very, very precise single source lighting, as we talked about before, you know, very, very, the light is going to be here and she's going to move. So we try to move the light as well with her. And I think the whole thing about going into the Copacabana was we want to show with the blackness in the image, you know, the much more powerful, he was getting into a much more evil person. In the beginning, yeah. he was like just a guy. And then when he's coming into the dark side of his of his mind, we want to try to play that with the light and the camera moving as well. Well, and I, and I brought this up a little bit earlier, and I know that like precipitation, uh, you know, rain and snow and stuff like that is maybe uh, in the in the realm of your onset special effects and or post effects because you can add some some of that stuff. But was there any discussion, you know, because I feel like it's part of your imagery and. Obviously, Guillermo del Toro movies, there's always a good rain scene in every one of his films or number of rain scenes. But I I felt like there was an arc to the precipitation again. It kind of like starts in the rain and ends in the snow. Was was that something that was specifically thought through for that reason? Like his world is getting colder or was there a, yeah, like an overarching. That's That's in the screenplay. That's like, you know, he wants to start in the rain. Moody, you know, all this carnival in it, the killing the geek, you know, throwing him on the on the stairs and it's raining, raining, raining. But then in the end of the movie where it's getting really brutal, you know, it has to be like a kind of romantic snowing, but it's so dark and brutal. Mm-hmm. And that is in screenplay. And the way we don't want to take it away from the uh, audience, but the way we light, oh, I like this, the last sequence with the girl there. You know, we want to have her without, it should be like a favorite tale. You know, she's coming out. Is she a ghost or what is it? And of course, the way we light that was like a moving head on a big crane and just light only her. So she was like, no shadows on her, but shadows everywhere around. And I think that's something you have to figure out with the tricks, of course, because you have to, how do we want to tell the story? And that's fantastic with Gamer because he knows exactly where he wants to go. Also in, in the Q&A, Guillermo uh, was talking about the last shot of the movie. And he said that he was ready to do it, you know, 60, 70 takes. And in fact, you had like a version of that set that you could set up anywhere so that you could just keep getting that thing. But well, I'll let you tell the rest. But can you talk about even preparing to like relight the same room a, a number of times so the actor would have any number of chances to get that right? Yeah, but we do that, you know. That's the part of working with Guillermo. You know, we're just changing, shooting some of the tent on location. Then we're moving the tent into a studio and we have to match that lighting 100%. And it's, I just know that when you're working with him, there's no, you have to be open, ready for everything. And I think it was clever for him not to do that like 16 times because it's 25 times because the way he did it was so much better. Well, and he said he said that the one that made it into the film was the first take that you ever did. Yeah, maybe, yeah, for sure. It doesn't surprise me. But for me, it's not a surprising. You know, he he just wants to do it right, and how we getting there, it's not a big deal. Sometimes, you know, we just if we have to move, take the tent down, move it into the studio, and just build it again in the studio. It's it's just the way it is um, because he wants to have the look he's going for has to be so precise, and that is again as a cinematographer. Messing the lighting sometimes, I've going to scream and crying. Said, "Oh fuck that!" 
<laughs> so you brought it up a little bit earlier, and I just kind of want to discuss a little bit because Guillermo has worked with with a few DPs, but you shot his first studio film, Mimic, and then you've shot his last several movies. So, you know, he was uh, known for Kronos and The Devil's Backbone was, I think, still a few years later. But, you know, he was obviously like a director of interest to the world from the beginning and you worked with him on Mimic it's always cool to find out like director DPs who work throughout their careers together what brought you together and what keeps you together he's calling me that's keeping us together (laughs) Um, no when we did Mimic I did another movie my first American movie called Nightwatch in LA for the Miramax brothers and then he should do Mimic and the brothers said you know Guillermo check this DP out and he did that and we met a couple of times and we have a chat about how to make movies and how it should look. And, you know, I'm from Europe, so I was not afraid of, of the darkness. I'm not afraid of, you know, the single source lighting. I was not afraid to not see anything because he really wants to go black. And you see Mimic, it's a pretty dark movie. And of course, I was sure I get fired now and then because sometimes it gets pretty dark. But we like that. Both of us like this, like single source lighting, move the camera, mm-hmm. don't be afraid but you cannot see. But then... After Mimic, we didn't work together for like, I think for 15 years. He was, Mimic was his first American movie and that was my second. And then a lot of reasons, you know, yeah, he worked with all the cinematographers. And then when he should do Crimson Peak, he called me again. And that was like, I think it was 15 years later. And I haven't seen him more or less. So I met him and it's like, it was like we have been together for like two days before that. Oh, wow. So had, you know, we're not talking too much to each other when we're not shooting. But we have a very, very strong relationship when we're shooting. We have the same feeling about lighting and how it should look. And so that's, for us, it's very, very easy to get into that world of how it should look. And we still, we still like the same, like, deep shadows and single source lighting and move the cameras a lot. And I think that's the way we, we're coming through it because we have the same opinion, the same feeling about lighting and camera movement. What, uh, what lenses were you using? The signature, signature primes. Oh, nice. The reason we choose them was because the close focus is so good. You know, you see a lot of times we are coming from a medium wide shot coming into a super close up. And those lenses have a really, really nice uh, close focus. Is it my imagination or uh, were you? did you tend to be on wider lenses in the circus and longer lenses after the circus? Yes, that's right. We shot the circus wider and we went a little bit longer lenses, but we are not... You're not super long, you know, we just, we are definitely wider in the carnival comparing to the rest of the movie. Like what lenses did you tend to land on for each? I think, you know, we was down, you know, 20, 28. I don't, you know, I'm always getting confused about those because I've used master anamorphic so much. I'm, my brain is always like a little bit off, but we just go to the wide angle side and the, the medium, medium focus lens in, uh, in the carnival. Is there something about the film no one's asking you about that you wish someone would ask you about that, you know, some aspect of, of the work that you did that you want to highlight or something about the, the you way know, I just work. think the reason I think the movie works so well is because we are, we are really trying to paint with the light. You know, it's not like we just light the set and then we're, you know, we are really trying to spend as much time we can t- to light those beautiful sets and light the actors so that looks really powerful and correct. And I think that's, that is a big thing as game as well. You know, we really want to tell a story with the camera and the lighting. And I think that works. When it works, it's really great. 
Yeah, it's really amazing. And I hope everyone listening to our podcast goes out and, and checks out Nightmare Alley. I, th- I think it's just one of the most beautiful films I've seen all year. And, and really just uh, I tweeted this right after I saw it. I feel like you and, and Guillermo have outdone yourselves. I, I feel like it's just such a and I'm a humongous, as you can tell, humongous fan of his work and your work. Ilya had already done the, the full interview with you before. And, you know, I, I would love to talk about a lot of the other stuff. I, I have many questions about Brotherhood of the Wolf. But oh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I. But I feel like we should maybe save that for another time. But uh, congratulations on making an amazing movie. And uh, I, I hope you're as excited about it going out in the world as I am. People I'm super excited. I'm very happy like. Thank you very much. Uh, it's great to meet you, Dan. Thank you so much. All right. That was uh, Daniel Lautzen. Uh, hey, thanks so much Freaking for coming. Amazing. Yeah, coming back to the show for a second time. That's great. And please, if you're hearing the sound of my voice, consider checking out Nightmare Alley. Watch the trailer for it, maybe. Although, honestly, I went to see it knowing not a goddamn thing about it, and I feel like that's a great way to watch Guillermo del Toro movie, not because of anything other than they tend to spoil stuff in the trailers, and I feel like uh, like I went and saw, when I saw Pan's Labyrinth, I was doing an interview of Guillermo del Toro for Creative Screenwriting Magazine, and they wanted me to go see it, and it was a month or two before it came out. And it was at the Hollywood Arclight in the middle of like a Wednesday afternoon. And I was familiar with Guillermo del Toro's work, mostly because I had done a a TV special for the first Hellboy movie for FX. But also I was a big fan of The Devil's Backbone and Kronos. Like I love his Spanish language movies. And so I went to see that movie, but I didn't know shit about it. And he came out and introduced it, which was very exciting. And then Pan's Labyrinth started and it was just like a pure discovery. It was like one of my favorite fondest moments of seeing a movie, period. And so when I went to see Nightmare Alley and I happened to run into friend of the podcast, Janelle Riley, I watched it uh, with her. Yeah, she was covering it for Variety. And uh, I hadn't seen the original movie. I hadn't read the book. And apparently there was a musical play adaptation of it that was that was done several years ago. Hadn't seen that. Janelle had, I believe, at least seen the play and read the book. But I think she might have also seen the original movie. So it wasn't a giant surprise to her. And to me, it was like I had no idea where the hell this thing was going. And I was just I, I, I was eating out of Guillermo del Toro's hand the whole way and Daniel Lautzen's. And I think it is just one of the most beautiful movies I've seen all year. I, I really love it. End of commercial for Nightmare Alley. <laughs> Okay, well, well, Ben, you know what time it is right now. Yeah, yeah, it's time for us to actually do a commercial. That's right. And uh, my commercial is going to roll straight into my short end, which is actually right. kind of exciting. Yeah, uh, we got, we got to thank our friends over at DZO, DZO Film, makers of uh, fine cinema lenses, uh, entry-level cinema lenses, uh, very inexpensive, very small. They have finally formally announced the wide lens to go to their Vespid set of lenses, which is a 16-millimeter lens. It's one stop slower than the rest of the set. It's a T28, but it is just as small and seems to be built to the same quality and have the same performance as the rest of the set of lenses. And so you can get now a 16 millimeter lens added to the rest of your set. They all cover full frame 35 and it's a special pre-release price of $1,699. So $1,700 real peel mount cinema lenses or EF mount cinema lenses and you can swap them. And you can order it from Hot Rod Cameras if you uh, already have a set or if you would just like to own the 16. Uh, We'll put a link in the show notes over at camnoir.com and possibly we'll start adding it to our, our Facebook page. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get you hooked up with the new uh, lens. It's going to start shipping January 20th, it sounds like, so really just a few weeks away. Wow, that's amazing. That's a great deal, too. 
It, it is. And the whole set of lenses really performs far beyond its price point. And if you were looking for something that can compete very favorably with some lenses that cost way, way more, uh, DZO is making some really high quality stuff. And I definitely recommend you checking it out. And you can check it out here at Hot Rod Cameras. We have them on display and you can play with them. It's fun. So therein lies our commercial and also technically my short end because my short end is really this fancy new DZO lens product because really it's an incredible set of lenses. It's very inexpensive and it now runs this huge range from 16 to 135, which is really amazing. So Ben, what is your short end this week? My short end is the new Dexter. Dexter, the new blood. I was a humongous fan of the original Dexter TV series on Showtime that aired, I forget what years, it was like 2008 to 2015 or something. And uh, like a lot of people, I uh, wasn't crazy about the way the show ended. And when I say like a lot of people, Michael C. Hall, who played Dexter, did not care for how the show ended. Hmm. Wow. And okay. when, I heard, when I heard they were bringing it back, I was very intrigued. And it's been on Showtime. I've been watching it. It looks amazing. They changed the entire setting of it. So the original series all took place in, in Miami, Florida. And this takes place up in the north and in, in kind of a frozen city during the winter. And um, it's really interesting to take a character who Dexter Morgan, the, the character, was kind of dark, kind of sexy, kind of charismatic, and also like, you know, has this hidden truth about himself that he's a serial killer mm. but he only kills other serial killers <laughs> and this is in, an interesting season in that it's been off for a long time and he had a child in the original series and that child comes back as a teenager in this you know to track down his long lost father and he's ditched his identity and everything about himself and uh, it's got a great supporting cast Clancy Brown is in it and I always love Clancy Brown in anything he's just wonderful and um, for people who are fans of the original series and I would say up to and including the season with John Lithgow, I feel like it sort of picks up in that zone and keeps the story going. And in fact, there was even sort of a, I hesitate to call it a cameo, but it was a, yeah, it was a cameo, like tiny John Lithgow cameo that was in this past week. So yeah, check it out. Dexter, it's back. Yay. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious. I know that our show producer, Alana, was a big fan of Dexter, but I don't think she's gone back to that. So I bet she will uh, take your suggestion. Give it a shot. All right, Ben, let's give away a book. Let's give away Directing Great Television. Dan Adias's book, Directing Great Television, we got one to give away. And uh, pick a number between 1 and 50, and we'll. Uh, and I've got a little list here of all the people who entered, and a number corresponds with a name. Any number between 1 and 50. Yeah, go for it. I'm going to go with 6. All right, 6. That is someone named Matthew Mernon. Matthew Mernon, who looks like he is either Los Angeles or Oklahoma City, something like that. He's uh, uh, well, either Los Angeles or Oklahoma City. Well, there's, there's basically a, the same thing. There's a there's a little airplane. It says Los Angeles, and there's Oklahoma City with a little house on his mm. uh, Instagram. So I'm guessing, I'm guessing maybe he traveled to Los Angeles to Oklahoma uh, or vice uh, versa. It could be. You know, uh, it, I I don't always understand the emoticons, but he's a SOC IGC 600 loader, and uh, he's got a company called uh, Kairos Pictures LLC. So, hey, congratulations, Matthew Mernon. You just won a book. It's a really great book, and uh, definitely go back and listen to our interview with Dan Adias. He really opened my eyes about TV directing, and, and, and I have shadowed TV directors, and I've been around it a lot, but it was really interesting to hear somebody who is sort of at the top of that game 
talk about his approach to the work and the book is just brilliant i love the book i I just read every page it's full of amazing it's kind of all it's one of those books that's like got a lot of war stories in it but also in between and meshed with that it's also just got amazing advice not just i don't even think only to tv directors but anyone who aspires to direct but certainly if you were looking to direct television i i can't think of a better book to read that, that's awesome. And maybe I'll get a chance to read it at some point, too. But we'll get that you'll chip. Have to, you'll have to come over here and steal it from me. Yeah. Uh, producer Alana Cody is going to reach out to you, uh, Matthew, uh, via probably an Instagram uh, message. And uh, we'll get your address and then we'll get that book sent out to you. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So, uh, Ilya, who do we have to thank this week as compared to every other week? Let's thank Kay Zalatrachi. You know, he said he's going to update our music and we're going to hold him to it. And that'll be awesome. So uh, let's, l- let's, thank, let's thank him first. Thank you, Kays. I appreciate thank it. Thank you, Kays. Yeah. Get to work, Kays. Who we know is listening, which is great. We know for a fact <laughs> is listening, which, yeah, used to, it was, anyway. Uh, let's also thank Alana Cody, our amazing producer, and it being uh, Oscar season. She oh, yeah. is just uh, kicking all the ass getting us uh, interview after interview with some of our favorite DPs. We got two interviews coming up two days from today. Two. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We, in we one got, day, we a lot. both for both for like mega star DPs. Very yeah. exciting. P- I don't know how I'm going to do two interviews in one day, but I'll do it. People who've been on the show before, even too. So giving nothing away. But uh, mm. all right. So uh, and let's also thank Ben Katz, whose job we made a little harder today. Maybe, maybe sorry about touch. that, Ben. But, but uh, you know, he, he's got a good attitude about it. Oh, and by the way, we passed the 900,000 download mark, Ben. So uh, so we're definitely... Oh, we're, man. Uh, we're, we're creeping in on that million. It's coming up. What should up. we do when we hit a million? It's probably only going to be a few months. I don't know, but maybe... Maybe we should give something away. Maybe we should have a party. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll figure out something. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what's going on with Omicron before we have a party. But yeah, yeah, yeah. something. <laughs> something for sure. It'll be a virtual party. I, I don't know what <laughs> it will be. But right. uh, Ben, where can people find you? Please go to Facebook and look for the group Needs a Werewolf. I'm there constantly. And uh, feel free to pitch your ideas for uh, movies that could be improved upon by adding a werewolf. Hey, uh, Ben, I'm going to have to uh, jump in here. Someone commented on our Instagram specifically about Needs a Werewolf. Uh, Orange Hat Film Productions says, uh, hot mash reference, guys. I think I might be the only millennial that got it. Also, Radar would totally have been the werewolf. That's fair. Okay. <laughs> For those of you who, who are playing the home game. And uh, also, in all seriousness, go to Ben Rock Online. Actually, in all seriousness, go to Needs a Werewolf. I'm not joking. I'm there constantly. But uh, go to BenRockOnline.com and you can uh, see my reel and uh, see some of my work and uh, find all my social media stuff. Say hi. All good. How about yourself, Philly? Where can people find you? Well, I'm just going to jump in there that if anyone didn't listen to the tail end of our show last week, uh, we referenced MASH, which was a television show and also a movie but we were referencing the, the television show uh, you can find me over at hot rod cameras and it's not nearly as catchy as needs a werewolf but we do have lots of cool gear here and we do have lots of uh if you, you know, needed to film a werewolf you could get all the gear to do that at <laughs> hot rod cameras uh without the werewolf itself yes you could cameras lights sound uh, all yeah, kinds yeah. of great you need to bring byow Yes, you had to bring your own werewolf to, to this. But, but uh, I will say we also have uh, the most technically competent uh, team you're going to find. So if you also bring your questions, uh, you can actually leave with answers to questions. And uh, and I'm not just you know blowing smoke when I say this. We have uh, very, very savvy people. We sit on fancy tech committees for you know organizations with three letters and all that kind of stuff. Where we know a lot about a lot. We built whole studios and things. So hit us up. We can help you with whatever you got going on. 
I actually recommended you to a friend of mine today who's looking to buy a camera. Oh, all right. Well, happy to help. Have him you hit me up. He's out of town at the moment, but when he gets back into town, I'm going to try and bring him over there. Then he's dead to me. No, I'm kidding. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to whenever that is. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. Yep. We'll be back next week with another fantastic episode of the Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.